the scripture passage that I'm reading next is from Ephesians. For the last three weeks, I've been preaching from the lectionary. The lectionary is a collection of passages that are suggested for the preacher to use. It's usually one from the Old Testament and a psalm, and then a gospel passage and an epistle. So this week, we'll be reading from the epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine the setting in which these words might first have been heard in the early church. You finish up your long day of work. You slip over to a neighbor's house You sit together in a room not too big. You pass some food and cup, and you hear these words read out loud. You aren't in a big congregation. Your church is only a small network of people, others who gather regularly to pray, to eat, to hear these words, and to reflect upon them. Imagine how precious these written words read aloud might be to those who could not read, and might be to those who do not have access to writing materials. Imagine that you hear these words in a time when authorities are trying to hunt you down, or other times when they mock you and your religious ideas. Though most of the time, no one cares what you're doing. They just think it's a waste of time to worship just this one God who you claim was made known in a country preacher called Jesus of Nazareth. To many outsiders, the gathering in the room of a house that would have listened to these words for the first time, this gathering would have seemed small, pointless, inconsequential. It's important to remember that these epistles, these letters, were written for specific congregations. These words that we attribute to Paul are like a pastor reaching out with words and prayers to people he knows and loves many miles away. The language Paul uses is less about precise theology and more about liturgically shaping a community through prayers, through blessings, through homilies. Paul is reaching out to nurture these believers who are tucked away in a small room trying to figure out how to live a life of faith. 
And while sometimes in Paul's letters we read about moments of stress or dissent, where Paul is working to push back against the heresies of the day or to bring people together and keep them together when they have very different ideas and very different backgrounds. But in this letter, the language has a different feel. It is not spare and frustrated. It is abundant and flowing, clause after clause sharing words and ideas and images of Christ as redeemer and sustainer. In this letter, we hear about the grace that is lavished upon us. We hear about God's plan for the fullness of time. We hear about the promise that all things in heaven and earth will be gathered in Christ. We are reminded that we do not have to worry about our inheritance of grace. In Christ, by the power of the Spirit, our inheritance of grace is secure. This letter was read aloud to a small group of people, and they probably were not the richest or the most educated in society, yet you would never know it from these words that we heard. The writer here is using a language of abundance. These are not words that signal scarcity or insufficiency. Paul is reminding these early Christians of the richness that they find in Christ. Their inheritance is secure. Two months ago, I witnessed a community that is shaped by a careful, thoughtful use of language. In May, Michael and I took a couple days up in Philadelphia, spending some time with my family and exploring the city. While we were there, we went to lunch at a place called Broad Street Ministries, which until about 12 years ago was a congregation in downtown near City Hall. It was a congregation that met in a big, majestic sanctuary, much like this. It was a congregation that had dwindled smaller and smaller and finally closed its doors as an official church. But a number of churches in the area contributed money and support, and it became a ministry program. It continued to offer worship and continues to this day, 10 years later, to offer worship on Sunday evenings. But it also has a feeding ministry program. It's a program that started small, just one meal a week, but now when I, the staff person I talk to estimates they feed about 1,300 people a week. They offer lunch and breakfast each day. They have a mix of staff and volunteers that come through their door. And they are very intentional about how they approach the people who are coming through their door. As you can imagine, there are so many people, and they all come with such different backgrounds that it is, so, takes some navigation to make sure that everyone gets fed and everyone gets sent on their way with minimal hassle. Ed, the staff person I talked to, described some of the ways they use language to help people connect and to help them feel safe. He pointed out that many people who live on the street or are at risk of living on the street are forced to live with the constant idea of scarcity. They are always one accident away from losing everything. They are always worrying about if they'll get another meal. When you live with this anxiety gnawing away at you day and night, you develop a mindset that resembles post-traumatic stress disorder. You act and react and overreact to situations. You grab and buy what you can whenever you see it. You might get agitated and aggressive if you think someone is taking your place. 
To counteract this trauma of scarcity, Ed says that this ministry program intentionally uses a language of abundance, both in their feeding and in their worship. They emphasize that there is enough food to go around. Over and over again, they say enough, abundance, words like fullness and lavish. They sit people carefully, not hurrying them through. They let people linger before and after a meal, much like what happens here in the Hawes building. People can come in and find a place to sit. They focus here at Broad Street on making the meal the most hospitable place it can be. And from these relationships around the table, they begin to nurture lives. And when they have communion, they take a whole hunk of bread and they say, take what you need, there is enough for everyone, there is enough for everyone. Enough, abundance, lavish, fullness, all things on heaven and earth. These are the words that we can hear today. And after a while, if we let them, these words will start to sink into our ears and our hearts and can start to shape our view of community, our understanding of God even. The writer of Ephesians is reminding a small community tucked away in a room that there is no scarcity in Christ. Through Christ's saving work, we have been marked with the seal. We have received the pledge. Our place in God's grace is safe and secure. In a world that pushes us along, no matter who we are or where we're from or what our resources we all can sometimes feel that anxiety of being pushed along or needing to grab what we can when we have it. In this world that tells us in both ways, large and small, to hurry up, this epistle reminds us that all wisdom and insight, all that we need, comes from Christ. And there is enough. In Christ, there is enough grace, enough love, enough redemption. There is enough. All grace has been lavished on us. We don't need to hold anything back because Christ hasn't held anything back. In the second Samuel passage, we heard how David approaches the ark. The scripture that Vernon read doesn't just say David praises God. It says he praises with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cassinets and cymbals and then with shouting and with trumpets. David rejoices and all join him. There is an abundance of praise. They bring forth the Ark of the Covenant, and there is no holding back. So in this world where there seems to be so often a language of fear, where the trauma of scarcity seeps into our public discourse, wherever we look, wherever we turn, these words from Ephesians can give us a corrective. Listen, there is enough. By Christ and Christ alone, there is enough. There is nothing we can do about it. Our inheritance of redemption is secure. And so what do we do now? Well, we respond to this gift of grace with joy, with shouting and praise. We rejoice that there is enough to go around. This doesn't mean that we are off the hook, that we don't have to care about what happens next. This means that the work of salvation is over and the work of discipleship is beginning. 
What it means that our, is that our lives of discipleship aren't built around the idea that we can win God's love and grace. We cannot. That work is done. Christ loves us enough to go through death for us. That work is done. And so now we share Christ's love and grace with all whom we meet, all who walk through the doors. And sometimes that sharing looks like a meal or singing in a choir, helping it walk in. Sometimes it means like sending the youth on a youth conference, like they are this week, where they get to experience other people from other places in the country who are singing and worshiping together. Sometimes it looks like gathering for a small group to pray and read scripture together. By the work of the Spirit, we all have something to add. We all have something to contribute. There is enough grace and love to go around, and so it is up to us to share it with each other. And indeed, there is another part of this letter to the Ephesians, a profound statement that is buried in the pronouns. In verse 11, the writer says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Two verses later, the words continue, In Christ you also were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And then it says, this is the pledge of our inheritance. These are simple pronouns, but they point to a vision of community that is more rich and full than the original hearers might have imagined. When the writer says, we, he is referring to Jewish Christians, those who have been part of the family of God, who trace their lineage through the ancient Israelites back to Abraham. When the writer says, you, He's referring to Gentile Christians, those who have been adopted into this family of God. These Gentiles don't claim the same lifestyle and heritage as the Jews, but they are still wanting to become part of the same worshiping community of believers. As you might know, these divisions between Jewish and Gentile Christians were hugely problematic for the early church. Figuring out how to bring together these different people took a lot of work, a lot of words are poured out about this. So Paul is using this language of abundance to remind people that community isn't threatened by having people with different backgrounds, families, educations. The community isn't threatened, indeed, it is enriched by this variety. So when the writer declares our inheritance together is secure, This is mind-boggling, ground-shaking stuff to the early church. Gentile and Jewish Christians are promised the same inheritance in Christ. There is enough of Christ's grace and love to go around. Indeed, this is a good reminder on a day when we welcome new members. New members bring new experiences and ideas, new ways of doing familiar things. This can sometimes seem intimidating, Yet we can also remember again and again that new members strengthen and enrich our community. When we remember that there is joy and discipleship enough to share, we become excited to have others join us. We become grateful to be on this journey together. The day we stop getting excited about new people showing up, the day we want to take our own understandings and opinions and perspectives and pack them away to our, keep them to ourselves. This is the day when our hearts and minds and spirits start to shrink and shrivel. 
This is the day when we lose sight of the promises that have already been made, the promises that Ephesians describes. Indeed, there is such richness in community. This week, some of us took home communion to church members who weren't able to make it to church on Sunday. And I read this Ephesians passage to Martha Maybe and to Harlan and Janice McMurray. And when I asked them what stood out to them, Martha pointed out the word lavish, how counterintuitive it is for our life of faith. And I can say I had not even noticed that word before she pointed it out. And when I said that, I said, oh, you know, I'm amazed by what you've noticed. Martha said, indeed, it is amazing what you notice in Scripture when you read it with other people. That is why we are here on this Sunday morning in the middle of the summer when we all have so many other things that we might do. This is the day when we remember that our journey of faith and discipleship isn't about what I'm doing on my own. This is the day when we remember what Christ is revealing to us individually and in community. There is a great book that mixes science and history and art that I read recently. It reveals this richness of reality to me in a very simple way, about the act of going on a walk with other people. Our Wednesday night worshipers might recognize this book since I've read parts of it on our Wednesday worship service, but I read it again because it continues to illuminate what we do when we set forth in predictable manners with other people who show us unpredictable things. Alexandra Horowitz is a professor at Barnard College in New York City, so she walks on city blocks a lot, and she spends a lot of time on her own street. She said it has soon become so familiar, so boring, simply a backdrop to something else she is doing that commands her attention. So she decided to ask 11 different experts to walk with her. People like a doctor, a topographer, an artist, a geologist. And they were to tell her what they noticed. Suddenly, she was given new eyes to see a very simple city block. She discovered things she had never noticed before. The doctor would diagnose people walking back and forth. The geology, geologist noticed the worm tracks in the concrete that were probably from a thousand years ago. She also took her two-year-old son, and she said this was the most illuminating walk of all. For, for me, she says, to go for a walk is a simple matter, almost too simple to describe. I thought a walk was going from point A to point B. How wrong I turned out to be. With my two-year-old son, I realized that the walk didn't begin when we got out onto the street. It began when we were in the apartment. It began when we started walking down the hallway to go tie on our shoes. We turned, we stepped out of the apartment, we turned left, and then my son just stopped. He squatted on the pavement, and he stayed there. Let's go for a walk, I prompted. I okie-dokie, I said in my best voice. She says maybe an eyelash batted, but mostly he just was looking at the pavement. Eventually he reached out my hand, and I grabbed it. And then we continued. A walk to my toddler has barely anything to do with putting one's foot, one foot in front of another from going from point A to B. It means exploring things with fingers, toes, and perhaps even your tongue. It means lots and lots of pointing. It means noticing shapes and colors. Her son had just learned triangles, so over and over again he weaves back and forth on the concrete finding railings with triangles, trash cans with triangles, pipes making triangles. 
her son said hello and goodbye to all the triangles he could see. To him, the world is al was alive with interesting shapes and colors and objects. To the toddler, almost everything commands attention. Everything wants to be noticed and touched. Horowitz describes meeting a man on this walk. She said he was a profoundly limping man, destitute and dressed too warmly for the weather. And he was clearing a path ahead of us with his presence. He was walking and gesticulating and making uh, exclamations to himself. He lurched around the very picture of menacing. Other people on the sidewalk were not just avoiding his eye, they were actively engaging themselves in not looking, looking at their phone, cutting across the street. They wanted to preempt any possibility of looking at him. I swallowed my urge to grab my son and change our path. Instead, I looked down at my son. He held his lips tightly closed. They were curved around his teeth. He slowed, and he grasped my fingers tightly in a fist as the man approached us. This lurching, menacing man stopped right in front of us and stared at my son. My son stared back. He was silent and attentive, taking the man in. After a beat, the man transformed. He smiled at my son. In front of my son's stare, he was unable to keep his normal routine of an outsider among adults. On that walk, I learned a new way of dealing with crazy-looking strangers in the street. This was a walk I didn't want to end. This toddler gives Horowitz uh, new eyes to see a richness of understanding the world that she did not have previously. When she invites others to join her, a simple city block becomes transformed. Ephesians is teaching us a new way to approach the world, a new way to see our own lives, no matter how small our community or how wavering our faith might feel. We are strengthened when we gather together with others who are seeking to love God and love each other. And we might be two or three people, but together, you and me and we, together we can remember the richness of our inheritance in Christ. We see again the grace that is lavished upon us, the abundance that is all around us, the fullness of love that is offered us. There is enough to go around, friends. Right here, right now, by the grace of God, our inheritance is secu secure. There is enough to go around. Let us pray. God, we come from many places for a little while. Use all that we are and all that we bring. Remind us that in you we have enough love and grace. Show us again how to respond to you with lives of joyful discipleship. Amen.